Hello, and welcome back to the HBAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, I am sitting down with Kelsey Moody, founder and CEO of i Life Sciences. i Life Sciences is one of the leading contract research organizations in the longevity space, and Kelsey is a leading figure in the upstate New York biotech scene. As a child of two upstate New York parents, I'm always happy to see activity in this region. In this episode, we will discuss how Kelsey started i what the future holds in terms of growth and expansion, as well as i activities in the longevity investment space. Without further ado, here's Kelsey Moody. Right. Kelsey Moody, thank you so much for joining the HSPAN podcast. We're all very excited to have you here. To start us off, Kelsey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about i I, I always find the i story fascinating. When I first heard it, I really latched to it as, as a story of success in this industry that we want to highlight. So can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, i how you made it into this longevity industry? I guess it's a good place to start. Sure. Well, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the podcast and speak with everybody. So I, I don't know, the, the I-Core Genesis story is crazy, right? Like I did undergrad in biochemistry in upstate New York, did a stint for a few years in uh, Silicon Valley, and then came back to New York, uh, Syracuse, um, to pursue an MD-PhD uh, upstate medical. And I was really interested in being able to pursue research in longevity alongside my medical and research studies. And as a medical student, we were successful in being awarded a half million dollar grant, which allowed me to start i for a variety of internal political reasons. Uh, I ended up setting up the company in my apartment instead of occupying normal university lab space to build out the projects. And it was ridiculous. The, the the kind of culture at that time was really by the fancy equipment when you need the fancy equipment, but use duct tape when you can get away with duct tape. Instead of using institutional autoclaves to sterilize media, we bought canning jars and grandma's pressure cookers. But like all of the quality control that you would do at the university, we were doing at the level of the apartment. All the kits they used to, to validate the institutional autoclaves and stuff we were using. We bought liquid handling robots and instruments for pennies on the dollar at auction and on eBay and refurbished those systems. And we were really able to set up a, a completely biology lab in, in the living room. One of the funny parts about it is the landlady had a very explicit no pets policy. <laughs> and one of the requirements was we needed to have uh, laboratory mice available. We were doing work with uh, blood stem cells, and we, we need to have these very special immune compromised mice that uh, can accept a human immune system. So they have to be in clean rooms and all this sort of stuff. And even though she had a no pet policy, she was a local science teacher and actually had worked in a vivarium in her undergrad. So she was like, yeah, absolutely no dogs or cats or you know pets of any kind. But if you want to have 50 laboratory mice, that's perfectly fine. It worked out well for her. We upgraded her electric and the floor to support the weight of all the equipment. And we built out this little freestanding clean room that we housed the mice in. And that's how we got started. <laughs> and even the pipe area, my girlfriend uh, was doing her veterinary doctorate at Cornell University at the time and has since graduated and is still our, our attending vet. But all of the pathogen testing and quality control stuff that Cornell was using on their $50 million facility, we were doing at the level of, of the living room. And that's kind of how we got started. 
That is hilarious that your landlady allowed. I mean, I guess mice aren't really pets, right? So I guess it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Definitely not lab mice. That's that. That's it. it truly is like a, an American story, right? Starting in your apartment, and then can you tell the audience where you guys are now? Yeah, so that was 2013. So just over 10 years ago, we celebrated our, our 10 year anniversary last year, which was wonderful. After getting some traction in the apartment, we ended up moving to our first commercial facility in Lafayette, New York, just south of Syracuse. And the whole central New York ecosystem is really ideal, I think, for this sort of biotech R&D. There's a lot of great universities nearby, Cornell, Upstate, Syracuse, and so forth. And But there's no there's no huge biotech presence. Hiring-wise, we get the, the cream of the crop. We have access to any of the facilities that we don't own internally, though our internal capabilities are pretty uh, significant this time. And yeah, our, our first commercial build was, was in Lafayette. I distinctly remember it's a farming community, so going to the zoning board, and the big concern was... How do the, what do you do about these genetically engineered mice if they get out into the, into the environment? Uh, for someone that's a non-scientist, that's a legitimate concern. They, like, they, don't, they, don't, they don't understand how this stuff works. And I was talking to my parents, I'm like, do I explain that these are immune compromised mice? And if they break out, they'll, they'll die very quickly to opportunistic infection or something like that. And my mother, who's a saint with dealing with me with all of this, is how much do the mice cost? I'm like, oh, they're $350 a piece. And she was like, just tell that to the zoning board. So when I met with zoning and, they, and that question inevitably came up, we were like, we treat this like Fort Knox. The mice are $350 a piece and no more questions about mice getting loose. They're like, okay, if they're that expensive. But I digress. We're four facilities about to condense into a new headquarters uh, shortly. So our total footprint will be about 30,000 square feet, about 50 people on the team. And we do everything from very early stage iterating molecules to test them for and improve on them for efficacy and toxicity and PK and those sorts of things, all the way through cell-based screening, obviously mouse and, and rat work. And then this year, we also launched a clinical trial division. So we're now also able to do clinical trials internally as well. That, yeah, you guys really have all, all the arms pumping there. So can you talk about the business then right now? So are you focused mostly on these clinical services as a way to generate like revenue or are, is, is the focus to spin out new companies in the space and invest in new companies? I know you are kind of the investor in the, the upstate New York arena. So you have a few companies in your portfolio. Can you talk about that and how the business works today in terms of yeah, generating revenue and, and growing? Sure. And the question is, right, if you're in Syracuse, New York, it's great because of intellectual capital, physical assets, low cost of real estate, low cost of living, all these things. But how do you get access to pharmaceutical partnerships and venture capital if you're not in San Francisco or San Diego or Boston, right? Mm -hmm. And several years ago, we uh, made a pivot with our business. And basically, the idea is that we operate as a contract research organization. So we provide fee-for-service work for the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. And what that's really allowed us to do, we really engage with our clients at a program level. And when you're working on something new and challenging like longevity, it's good to be able to see hundreds of different programs across hundreds of different clients to, to really understand the diversity of different approaches, different technologies, what the sticking points are with those technologies. And by operating as a service provider, we're profitable, which is helpful. We get to see a ton of stuff, but most importantly, we have relationships with VC and pharma. We take the profits 
from that work to fund our own internal portfolio of companies. And then when those companies and programs are ready to be partnered, we already have the relationships in place with co-development partners and acquisition partners and so forth. That's the model. I, I feel like there's way too many people in the life science industry that are focused on, they raise tons and tons of money. There's all kinds of hype. And then three or four or five years later, they fizzled out and there's not a whole lot going on. We're one of the oldest companies in the entire sector, and we're probably one of the only profitable ones. And we've been able to accomplish that without the backing of billionaires and huge VCs and hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the, the great American story. You got it, Kelsey. Just to touch on something you said before, I do find it interesting that more companies, especially in the longevity space, just with the hurdle, the hurdles that this industry faces with the FDA and just the cost of living in these big cities is just so much higher for employees. I'm, I'm shocked that more people don't adopt the model of at least moving operation, the clinical trial or vivarium services or any sort of testing. I'm surprised they don't, more companies don't move that out to more remote places. So my question is, do you contract with, is it mostly pharma companies or are you helping some of these longevity science companies, biotech companies spin out and do their own uh, clinical research as well? Uh, we're across the board and there's actually relatively few longevity biotech companies that we're not engaged with in some sort of way. One of the kind of misconceptions I think with, with people about drug development is they assume that most of these companies do all of their R&D internally. Most of these companies, and including and especially ones that have raised large amounts of capital, if you go to their labs, they're just offices. They outsource significant portions of their R&D to third parties. They don't control the data. And because they're not actually doing the bank work themselves, they're making business decisions about the trajectory of the organization based on what some outfit in China is reported for data with often dubious quality controls in place and stuff like that. In our case, we're actually doing the work. And it, that, that was one of the things I, as we got into the CRO business and, and, and went out to a lot of these different, not even just startups, but mid-tier companies that raise hundreds of millions of dollars. You go to these offices expecting some grand organization and it's five people and a couple cubicles. And that's the extent of the company and everything else is outsourced. We feel that Sometimes, if you want to do something disruptive and you want to do something innovative, you actually have to do the work. You can't outsource it. And that's been uh, a, a central aspect of our ethos. Sure, sure. That's definitely the ethos of i -Corp. So let me ask you this. Where do most companies, if it's not i are there is there a big footprint for CROs in the U.S. or is it mostly shipped abroad or are most of these kind of experiments done elsewhere? Yeah, so for cost reasons, a lot of uh, kind of commoditized work has gone to China and India just because labor costs are so low. There's also certain practical advantages. If China doesn't recognize certain patent laws, then if I'm trying to make a proprietary resin to purify some compound and I have to pay patent fees and stuff to use that my, my direct costs are just going to be a lot higher whereas China has lower labor costs and they can just ignore patents and manufacture for pennies instead of thousands of dollars in some cases so there's certainly cost advantage in going abroad I think that 
outsourcing to China and India has its place that's really uh, effective um, for certain very commoditized, run-of-the-mill, standardized sorts of tests that you want to do. Um, but if you're dealing in something new, something innovative, something that requires a lot of development work and a little bit of original thinking, um, that's where U.S. providers um, tend to shine. Uh, the other thing that we're seeing is in the political ecosystem, I know that there's a variety of bills that have been proposed for national defense reasons that would restrict U.S.-based pharmaceutical and biotech companies from outsourcing significant aspects of R&D to China for security reasons. Yeah. Uh, and obviously with COVID, the whole supply chain was very disrupted. So what we're seeing, at least on the contract research side, um, is a huge influx of demand for people that are looking for U.S. providers. Since we decided to do this, we've been increasing, you know, revenue something like 30 to 50% year over year without, frankly, a whole lot of marketing effort just because the demand keeps skyrocketing. Right. There's a perfect example. Policy affects the business, especially in this longevity sector. Yes, that's interesting. We'll jump into the political uh, stuff in a little bit, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's fascinating. And that, that's definitely an interesting point. I'm a big geopolitics guy and, and, and just, just interesting to hear it coming from your mouth, talking about how the demand is increasing. But this is just something I think a lot of people are seeing in, in many different sectors. I think the, the demand for producing things on the North America continent or the Western hemisphere is, is people are realizing that the supply chain situation is we can't rely on the other side of the world for everything. And that, that extends all the way to biotech. But it, it's interesting that the high tech, the, the high end biotech is mostly done here. Are there any other countries that, that kind of are up there like Switzerland or Sweden or any European countries? Because I would think that maybe they would be in the running too for this, that maybe they dominate the European ecosystem. I can't imagine American companies going over to Europe, but do you have any uh, thoughts on that? How the European or African or Middle are there different hubs? Is it going to be like different hubs for this? Uh, is everybody going to go to their own hub or is there, is there going to be more international partnerships? I, I don't know. This is, might be a loaded question. <laughs> no, I think the, the international component happens as it makes sense, right? There's certain things that are very conducive for outsourcing where really the goal is to reduce cost of materials and cost of labor. And I think you'll continue to see some of those sorts of services outsourced. I do think that there is, there's always been in continues to be different biotech hubs. Certainly there's companies based in Europe that kind of dominate the European market, both in terms of pharmaceutical companies and uh, CROs that support them. And we see the, the same thing in the U.S. What is going to be interesting in the global scene is the consolidation of these CROs. What we're observing is all of these kind of smaller CROs, it's a beautiful private equity play. And I probably get like six to 10 inquiries a week from private equity groups that are interested in CRO M&A opportunities because you take all these smaller CROs, combine them and make them into a larger one. They can cross sell clients across a broader variety of services, and then they get gobbled up by a larger one. And it's uh, so we're seeing both for preclinical services, so work before drugs go into people for the first time, as well as clinical services, organizing and running clinical trials. We're seeing a huge consolidation of companies just being gobbled up and forming larger groups. And of course, most of those large groups are international and span multiple continents. It'll, it'll be interesting to see as those organizations mature how that affects or is impacted by the political landscape. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is interesting. So 
I want to just jump topics real quick and just talk a little bit more about the longevity drug development you guys are doing at i because I, I find the fact that you guys are profitable and able to fund your own startups, you guys got it down like that. You, you figured it out in my book. First off, can you tell us a little bit about the companies in the portfolio, the drugs in development? And then can you tell us a little bit about how, how many companies you're able to fund a year? Is this like an ongoing thing? Do you take the profits every year and invest them in new companies or are you know, focused on the two or three you have right now and making sure they reach maturity? What's the game plan in terms of the portfolio? But first, sure. for science. <laughs> sure, loaded question. So, so our investment thesis is as follows. If you're actually developing a longevity drug, which we define as a product that will target um, multiple underlying damages that drive aging. So not you know specific diseases, but pathways that apply to multiple diseases. If you're actually targeting those fundamental pathways and they are involved in aging broadly, then those pathways to a large extent should exist in every organ system. Our preference when possible for investing is to start by developing assets that are used in eye disease. And that's purely from a practical development perspective. If I'm dealing in the eye, I have very easy ways of measuring function of the eye, structure of the eye, adverse effects in the eye. I don't need to deal with things like half-life of drugs is a big issue. If I inject something IV or if I take something orally, I need to figure out how to get it past the, the intestinal barriers and into the bloodstream. A lot of those kind of basic drug development issues don't exist in the eye because it's a very isolated and closed space. So our preference is to target diseases of the eye, but target hallmarks of aging or pa damage pathways of aging that have applicability to systemic disease. Okay. So junk accumulates inside of cells and causes age-related macular degeneration. We have an age-related age macular degeneration asset we're developing, but the hope is that we could also use the same approach or similar technologies to degrade junk that accumulates elsewhere in the body with age, as an example. That's We're not always able to do it that way, but that's that's our preference. And in, in terms of the you know actual scope of projects, we've got probably about, I think we have four, four companies that are act incorporated and actively doing R&D in the incubating at I-Core immediate portfolio. And then we have probably another half dozen or so projects that aren't quite at the level that we want to spin them out as companies yet, but they're in various stages of, of R&D. Our goal is to hold about 25% or so of our research capacity to support the, the portfolio companies. What's really nice about a CRO, if I need that fancy piece of equipment and the operator to use the fancy piece of equipment to run my project for my internal R&D, that costs a lot of money. If all of that is paid for by contract research operations, then I'm basically only paying the direct material costs um, to be able to support the portfolio companies. So not only are we profitable and able to provide funding for the portfolio companies, but we can use that funding for pennies on the dollar compared to normal R&D expenses because all of the overhead and fixed costs and things like that are already paid for. Right. So that's that's a, a model. Um, we're fairly opportunistic. We don't have a huge game plan of like, all right, we want to do six port codes a year for 
five years and we're tending to be a little bit more flexible and identify good opportunities as we see them. And of course, we have a network of angel investors. We see something that's, you know, really enticing, but outside of what we can fund ourselves, you know, we have a network of investors that can syndicate deals with us and help move promising technologies along. That was, that was my next question. Yes. Yeah. So how much of these companies that are spun out, are, are these companies like a subsidiary of i or are they their own independent companies as I, and i is a, a major minority stake or a major, uh, more than half or whatever it is? How does the structure work with the, these companies in i -Corp? Yeah, all, all of the above, and it depends on the on the company. Obviously, companies that are ideated and initiated through iCore proper, iCore has those as subsidiaries. We do have companies, Lemtobio, I think Chris Barnes was on your program recently with, with his company. That's an example of someone that came to us with an excellent idea, and we help capitalize and incubate his his company, but we don't have any operational control over that organization. That's, that's his to develop, because that's the end of the day, we can only run so many portfolio companies at once. We want to, we do want to continue to spin out our own tech, but we also want to help find and support emerging entrepreneurs and enable them to, to run their own programs as well. So you're in such an interesting position because you're a company that you've, you said, you said you've mostly funded i through the CRO revenue, right? But I, I, if I remember correctly, i received some venture funding at some point, maybe? Yeah, i Proper's received maybe on the order of 3 or $4 million in capital over the years, mostly for financing capital expansion. We have ALAC accredited Vivarium that we finished renovations on maybe two years or three years ago, something like that. So we took in a little bit of dilutive capital to support that expansion. But for the most part, i running off of its own, off of its own CRO activities. That's well, good, absolutely good for you. But my, my question, well, my thought was you're in an interesting position because you're both the investee and the investor, right? You're looking at, you're in both positions. And as the investor, my question is, and this is a little bit off track, but something I think our audience would be interested in hearing. What do you look for in, in an entrepreneur? What's the difference between a company that you allow to go on its own versus a company that kind of stays more in-house? Does the leader of the company matter in, in, in that thought process of how you're going to structure the, the equity and the financing? What do you look for in these entrepreneurs and how does that affect your investment? thesis. Is that a big yeah. part? Yeah. I think honestly, the entrepreneur is probably the most important selection criteria. There's there's far fewer people that can execute good work than there are projects to attempt and funding for those projects, to be frank. So I think the quality of the individuals, what, what we're really interested in, everyone says, oh, fail fast and preserve capital and pivot. And they use all these buzzwords. But if you're in a situation where you're an entrepreneur and you have a fixed runway, you have to give the, the ritzy, glamorous presentation to investors to stay solvent. You don't actually have the ability to do those sorts of pivots. With i fully controlled subsidiaries, because we're funding it, we don't have those sorts of external pressures. We don't have to make short-term, short-sighted decisions at the expense of long-term successes. And even with organizations that we're supporting, we want them to be free of those sorts of pressures also. When we're talking to 
portfolio companies. It's look, I don't want you to go and, oh, you're about to run out of cash and you're going to have to go take a huge dilution before you hit that milestone um, that's going to you know allow you to raise a lot more money on far more favorable terms. Um, why don't we provide a bridge and avoid that dilution and, and get you to the next level? And that kind of ethos is also shared by our investor network as well. They, I'm not interested in just building products that I can dump on the public market at phase two, and maybe they work and maybe they don't, which is literally the business model of almost every biotech. Um, I'm interested in building products that are going to change standard of care for medicine. And that requires um, longer term thinking. And it requires, uh, frankly, a little bit of an unapologetic attitude for how we develop these things. And our hope is we're not going to come with a flash and leave with a bang like a lot of these other companies. We're not going to be raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars overnight. But I think long term, we're going to see the, the things that we're working on outperforming a lot of competitors that are far better capitalized. Yeah, absolutely. You've set it up in a way where i, I is the entity that's going to grow. That was a little bit dumb dumbly put, but the way that you've set up i is so impressive. And I see, especially as, like we mentioned before, as these companies and, and these biotechs look inward and look more towards America, I don't think that's a trend that's going to you know stop anytime soon. i is well positioned to to not have to play that game that we just mentioned. You don't have to go and uh, impress the investors. It's a it's really a testament to, to to you. So I'm I'm, I'm going to give you kudos right here, Kelsey. N nicely done. <laughs> ten years in the making, and you definitely got ten more years in here, right? How many years <laughs> before the first drug that Icor spins out? How long will that take to get into someone? That's an open question. I'd hope that some of the things we're working on now will be entering human clinical trials in the next three years. We do have active collaborations with existing pharma partners around some of our assets that we're developing in the portfolio companies. The real question is just, are they going to work well enough to warrant going into human clinical trials? But we do have the relationships and the, the clear path to clinic outlined for several programs. Yeah, I just find it interesting because so, so many companies go on this like fundraising blitz right before they end <clears throat> clinical trials. And it doesn't seem like you need to do that at all. I'm well, sure you it, raise a little I, bit. But. It depends, right? The, the ideal world would be to do it through pharma partnerships because the capital is less expensive. And what we're really good at is uh, going zero to one with new products. And we're decent at the one to a hundred on the new products. But when it comes to all the regulatory filings and going through the massive checklist of things that FDA requires you to do before you go into human trials for the first time, when you're talking about large scale manufacturing of products for commercial applications, when you talk about sales and distribution of products, once they're approved, we don't do any of that. And we don't have expertise in that. So if we're able to secure pharma partnerships, not only can we get capital on far more favorable terms, and we have an exit partner outlined, but we also benefit, perhaps even more importantly than the capital, uh, we benefit from the expertise of these people that really have deep expertise in that whole process that we don't do. So it, it's a really good relationship um, for developing new products. Very interesting stuff, Kelsey. So because of your leadership position in the longevity space, we've talked a lot about the, the, the political angle here and how to get the top levels thinking about longevity science, the implications, funding the research and development, changing FDA regulations, things like that. And so we've been talking about this for a couple months now. 
And one of the things that I find really compelling about working with you is the fact that you are in upstate New York. And we discussed before, all the companies are in San Francisco, Boston, San Diego, you know, New York City, maybe, but not really. And that's it. And in my experience, going around to these political offices, making the pitch for longevity science, I found myself going to the same, there's only 40 or so offices that have longevity biotech representation in their districts. And they're all on the coasts, except for i and a few others. And I found when I spoke to some of these coastal representatives, they at least have heard of it before. Some constituents have maybe mentioned something to them in the past. Their staffers might have known something about it. Mostly not, but sometimes. Can you talk about your interactions with politicians, political figures in the area, do they, in your experience, understand what i is setting out to do? What's the level of political understanding in upstate New York around longevity science? We just had a big turnover of our representatives, so I haven't made the rounds to reintroduce us to the to the new ones. But historically, everything from local through federal has been incredibly supportive and very aware of what we were doing. Up until his recent retirement, John Katko was our representative. He was a phenomenal supporter, did a bunch of press releases and stuff with us, and made a lot of introductions to, particularly on the some of the national security initiatives that some of the regenerative medicine work that we're working on might have overlap with. The mayor of Syracuse has been through our through our facilities and gowned in with the team and everything for the clean rooms and all of that. And you know what what I really liked about the local rep or about these representatives is they were engaged with us from day one. Our our first little dinky like two thousand square foot commercial building. They were there on the ground. They thought it was awesome. They understood what we were trying to build, and they've been very strong supporters as we've been building the organization over time. Likewise, with one of the priorities for a lot of a lot of the politicians is industry academic collaborations. We actually have, to my knowledge, the oldest industry PhD program focused on developing longevity drugs. We've run that for six or seven years at this point with some of the local university partners. And those sorts of industry academic collaborations are ideal for being supported by government initiatives and those sorts of things. So my next question is, as a pol- if I were a politician and I saw what i was doing, I would be thrilled because I can't imagine that Lafayette and the surrounding area has a lot of biotech presence. So I, I know they don't, right? My question is, where do they get excited? Do they get excited at because of the science or do they get excited because of the economic activity this drives or both or neither? Like where, where does their excitement really come? I think your answer will be something that the industry can use. If you, if you think it's the economic reason, we can. I, I think it would make sense for the industry to lean into that because I, I found success in that too. So I'll stop rambling, but what do you think? It's all over the place, right? I think the advantage of a place like central New York is this is a very blue collar area where people take pride in building things. They're not necessarily proud of having unlimited amounts of money or giant buildings or whatever, but it's about what have I been able to produce? What is the quality of the thing that I'm producing? And even on the pharmaceutical side, Bristol-Myers Squibb has historically had a presence here. And in World War II, they made half the world supply of penicillin in Syracuse. Everything about the culture of this area is taking pride in building something. And I think that extends to the politicians as well. Sometimes 
sometimes the support and how they help us things is with, you know, small seed funding, their grants for growth program that provides, you know, some of uh, seed capital for new ventures and things like that. Those were helpful for some of our port co's in the early days. They have traditional economic development incentives for building new facilities and hiring people. They have workforce training initiatives, educational initiatives. But I think it's about, you know, it's less about one specific thing that they're able to do to make an impact and more about how can we as a community build something really special together that doesn't just benefit i or just doesn't benefit one of the portfolio companies, but allows us to build and expand and help the community overall. Um, and I think that kind of approach is central to central New York. Sure, 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 sure. Absolutely. I did not know that about the penicillin. That's fascinating. Upstate New York yeah. represent. And I'll actually touch on that a little bit too for the, uh, on the international policy. So that site, everyone's been in our area has been really excited because Micron is supposed to be building multi-billion dollar factories, 20 minutes north of us. And that's going to be a huge economic driver, but what hasn't gotten any coverage is that Lotte, which is, I think the fifth or sixth largest uh, conglomerate in South Korea bought the Bristol site in Syracuse and has been pumping in hundreds. I think they bought it for $260 million and they're doing all kinds of investments, renovating buildings, setting up new capabilities and labs. And that's gone virtually unnoticed. As we're thinking about economic development, as we're thinking about foreign policy, those sorts of cash infusions can be really helpful to revitalize a region or a sector, um, though, as we discussed a little bit earlier, there are certain national security concerns depending on where the cash is coming from, et cetera. Sure. South Korea is probably safe, though, I would assume. <laughs> I, I would assume so. Fascinating. We're almost out of time here. I am excited. I just want to say to that I, I'm happy that you are a leader in the space. You have a very powerful story. You're you're obviously brilliant as both a a businessman and a scientist. And I'm glad we have you on the show here. So I'm excited to work with you, Kelsey. This is, this has been a great conversation. I want you to leave our audience with this. So I usually ask our guests uh, to end the show by telling our audience what the, what gets them out of bed. What, what, what are you excited about for the future? There's a lot of dread in the world. The news is terrible always, but how do you persevere? How are you able to stay positive and on this very audacious, very long-term and, and impactful goal of producing longevity medicine? That's a really great question. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was going to go into the military. I was an Army ROTC cadet, uh, and that's what I was going to do. And I got exposed to this whole idea of longevity medicine. I wasn't a science person. I wasn't a scientist at all. I hated biology and chemistry. I was doing anything but that. But I thought the promise of the space was really profound. And I said, okay, a year short of graduating, I said, I'm going to change my major to biochemistry, which is one of the hardest majors that you could choose at university. And I'm going to pursue this professionally until I decide that all of this hype isn't real. And this isn't a thing we, we, it's not possible to get aging under medicinal control. And when it's clear, that's the case, I will go do something else. That's a heck of a lot easier and will probably make me a lot more money. And 15 years later, I'm still here doing this. I think that the promise of the space only continues to increase the sophistication, the technology. I don't think that there's a place that a greater impact can be made 
than in this sector at this time doing these sorts of things. And it's just very humbling to be able to work alongside some of the brightest minds trying to tackle the largest problem that's ever existed in humanity. And if that's not enough to get you up in the morning, I'm not quite sure what is. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's, that, that inspires me as well. It's There's a lot of things in the world right now that give me heart attacks and make me nervous, but the, the promise of tomorrow and the promise of a better future and a healthier future definitely pushes me too. So I'm glad we're aligned on that. And that was a great answer, uh, Kelsey. With that, I, I think we're going to wrap up here. Is there anything you'd like to tell our audience before uh, we sign off? Any Anywhere we can find you on the social media world? Any websites you want to tell our audience to visit? Now's the time. No, don't have any plugs of any sort. We're online on all the social media platforms. iCore Life Sciences is the organization and I'm Kelsey Moody. So if people want to follow or ask questions or see how they might be able to get involved in research or ask us about policy or whatever else, we're happy to play friendly with anyone that wants to engage with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. So Kelsey, Kelsey Moody, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to potentially having you on in the future to give us another update about ICOR and, and and what you guys are up to. Awesome. Appreciate the invite, Dylan. Absolutely. All right. Live long and prosper. Thank you, Kelsey, for making the time to join us today. And for those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HBAN will return in a couple of weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.